So if you will, take your Bible and turn with me now to uh, Exodus chapter 13, and we're going to go through chapter 13, 14, and uh, some of chapter 15 tonight as we talk about this subject, the firstborn and the freedom. Last week, you know, we ended up uh, near the end talking about the Passover and then the Exodus. We're going to see uh, some really exciting things that happened just after that uh, in our passages tonight. So uh, you'll need to be on uh, your uh, best behavior and keep your fingers nimble because we'll be turning around to some verses tonight that I trust will be a blessing to you. It's the Word of God, and it's always good just to study the Word of God, isn't it? It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. All right, uh, we are looking now at uh, chapter 13, and let me give you point number one. As we talk about this subject, the firstborn and the freedom, number one, redeeming the firstborn. As you're reading along chapter 12, then then getting into chapter 13, it seems like in a way that the uh, subject totally changes because you go from reading about the uh, Exodus and they're leaving Egypt, and then all of a sudden, the Lord spoke to Moses about something having to do with the firstborn. So I'll explain that to you in a minute, but uh, let me just uh, read verses 1 and 2 and then skip over to verse 12 of uh, this uh, chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Then look at verse 12 that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. Verse 13, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So what's this all about? Why is God telling Moses to consecrate the firstborn to him? There's a reason for it. Remember that when we studied the Passover last week, what happened was that death reigned over the land of Egypt, except in the part of Goshen, that part of Egypt that's called Goshen, where the Israelites lived, where each home that had sacrificed a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost, on the doorpost and over the lintel, and were inside the house, that house was protected uh, from death. Any house that didn't have that protection uh, in Egypt, anywhere in Egypt, then there would have been death that reigned in that house. The firstborn son of every house, uh, including also the animals that were part of that household, would have died on that Passover night, but God passed over the houses where the blood was applied. Now God wants to teach Moses some additional truths about the firstborn, why it is so important to do what God commanded Moses and the children of Israel to do. So he says here in verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 2, consecrate, which means set apart to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. In other words, the firstborn is a reflection and a testimony 
of the power of God to continue the generations going on. So the firstborn was significant. Often you'll see, especially in the Old Testament where there are more stories about this, uh, you'll see a son uh, whose father really delights in him as the firstborn uh, and because he is the son of his right hand or the son of his strength. That firstborn son is a testimony, is a is a, a word of encouragement about the power that God has given uh, husbands and wives to procreate, to have the generations following, and so they're excited about this. But God wants His people to remember and understand that that firstborn, as a testimony to His grace and His providence and His power, is to be consecrated to the Lord. That is, He is to be given over to the Lord. And this was true all throughout the history of Israel. You remember, by the way, when the Lord Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, there was a time when they went to the temple to present Jesus there. And as a part of that presentation, they brought two turtle doves, which was their gift to God in order to redeem their son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, in, in accordance with the Old Testament law, that's what they did. If you couldn't afford a lamb... Uh, then you could bring something else that was less expensive than a lamb, which indicates to us the uh, financial uh, situation of uh, Mary and uh, her husband Joseph, that they couldn't afford a lamb, they could only afford a pair of turtle doves. So this is what God is speaking here to his people, that they are to remember the blessing of the firstborn, and to consecrate that firstborn to the Lord by offering to the Lord a sacrifice in place of the firstborn. Now, in the case of an animal like a sheep, that it, if a lamb, when it's born, then that firstborn lamb was to be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord, but not a donkey. Why is that? Because a donkey is an unclean animal. So he had to offer something in place of an unclean animal so that uh, that would, would fulfill the law. But I want you to see, as I'm talking about redeeming the firstborn, letter A is the significance of the firstborn, and I've already talked about that. But let me show you one other thing about this. And for that, I want you to turn back to chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Chapter 4 is where God is calling Moses and instructing him on what to do to go back to Egypt. He's still in Midian at this time, to go back to Egypt and to uh, go into Pharaoh's court and tell him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may go out into the wilderness and worship me, offer sacrifices. But notice what God says to Moses way back in chapter 4, long before he ever goes to see uh, uh, Pharaoh, he says in verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. You see the distinction that God's making here? He is saying to Moses, go into Pharaoh's court and deliver this message to him. Israel is my firstborn. So you better watch what you do with my firstborn. I'm telling you that you need to release them. You need to let them go. You need to free them from slavery because Israel is my firstborn. If you don't let my firstborn go, you're going to pay with it by the death of your own firstborn. You see the distinction, how important it is in God's sight that this firstborn son, Israel, is the firstborn son 
of God, and therefore he has this special place for them. And you know the history of Israel, how God has a special plan for Israel, beginning with Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's still true today. Those who bless the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are blessed today. And those who are cursing them are cursed today. That is still true. There are a lot of people in the world who are cursing Israel today, and they're going to pay the price for it if they haven't already, because you don't mess around with God's people. God has a special plan for Israel. God has a special plan for the church, and God is in control. He's going to perform what he has promised he's going to do. So we see then the, first, the significance of the firstborn, but then this was to continue after they go into the promised land. And so letter B under point number one is reminder for the future. Let's go back to chapter 13 now, and let me read verses 11 through 13 one more time, and I'll make a few comments about that. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. In other words, it's not going to be useful to man unless you redeem it. And all the firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. So God wanted his people to remember this for all of their history. They were to remember the Passover, not just one time a year when they would have the Passover meal in the spring of the year at the same time the Passover and the Feast of First Fruits and all that was going on, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They also were to think about it every time a family had a firstborn son. Because when they get to Canaan, when the generations come and the generations go, maybe some of them will forget that God delivered their ancestors out of Egyptian slavery. So this was a way for the people of God to be reminded of how much God loves them. Israel is God's firstborn son. So when a family would have a firstborn son, they would redeem that son, and that was meant to remind them that their ancestors had once been in slavery, but now they were free, and because of the grace and mercy of God, and it also taught them the very truth of the word of God and the principle of a substitutionary sacrifice. One animal... One living person or one living creature was to shed its blood so that another one could live. And that sounds familiar to all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Because when Jesus died on that cross, he was giving his life as a substitute for us. He died in our place so that the Lord then credits us with the righteousness that Jesus has but by our faith in him. So we're blessed people because of that. So redeeming the firstborn, we've looked at that. Now then secondly, point number two is marching to freedom. Marching to freedom. We're going to pick up now at verse 17 of chapter 13 and read a few verses here. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, 
lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So they go out in orderly ranks. In other words, they are marching to freedom. They are released from Egyptian slavery, and they are organized as they leave Egypt. And we saw last week how God gave them favor from the Egyptians, and they plundered the Egyptians just as God had promised that they would do. They'd been slaves for 400 years. They had really no earthly possessions to speak of, but the Egyptians gave them uh, clothing and gold and silver and all kinds of things as they left Egypt, and now they're marching away from Egypt, and Moses remembers the promise that was made concerning Joseph long time ago in chapter 50 of Genesis, that uh, when you die or when I die, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Eventually, you'll be going back to Canaan. Take my bones with you. And that's what the next few verses are about. But I want you to think with me under letter number A, uh, or letter A in point number two that we just read, the indirect route. Notice again in verse 17, came to pass when Pharaoh had led the, let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God is sending them on an indirect route to Canaan, to the promised land. There were really two reasons for this. The first one is here in verse 17. That is, if they went straight toward the promised land, they would go through the land of the Philistines. They are a warring people. They had chariots and they had swords and they had shields and they had spears. And these, uh, these Israelites had none of that. So God says, lest they become afraid because of war and turn around and want to go back to Egypt, they're not going by uh, that way, which was the closest way. But then there was another reason that God did this. And I want you to look at the next chapter, 14, verses 3 and 4. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain favor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. So what were the two reasons that God sent them the way he did? First of all, he sent them in an indirect way in order that they wouldn't get discouraged and want to go back to Egypt. You know, I've discovered as I've lived a few years on this earth that often God sends us on indirect paths. A lot of times we don't know exactly what God may be doing in our lives because it seems like we're not doing what we thought we might be going to do or we thought something surprised us and we didn't know God was going to bring this into our lives. But God has a plan and a purpose. I was, Becky and I were just talking on the way in 
this evening about the video that's on uh, Bellevue's website or on the Facebook page uh, of uh, Vicki Hancock. Have you all seen that? Well, if you haven't, you need to look at it. Vicki Hancock and Bobby. Bobby has been chairman of our deacons in the past, and Vicki and Bobby have been members of Bellevue for a long time. It's a wonderful testimony about the grace and providence of God, how they thought that God was leading them in one direction. God had a different plan for them, and what a blessing their lives have been because of the different plan that God had for them than they had anticipated previously. So you never know what God may be doing in your life. He is always working. Sometimes we can see evidence of it. Sometimes we may not. Let me give you another example. When there's a person that, that uh, God is working on, convicting them of sin, a person who is lost and doesn't know the Lord, God begins to work on that person, drawing them to himself. Well, he also begins to work on a messenger, on a witness, preparing that person to talk to this other person so that when they talk, that person may be ready to receive Christ. So God prepares both the witness and the one who needs witnessing too. He works simultaneously in both lives and brings them together sovereignly, providentially in his timing. So you, you may not know what God is doing in your life when he brings somebody, somebody into your life that you didn't anticipate or you didn't know before. It may be that God wants you to share with them the love of Jesus that you have found and what God has done to change your life and tell them that he can do the same in their lives. So there's the indirect ways that God lead us, that God leads us wherever he may want us to go. But there's also the reality that God wanted people to know that he is the one in control and he's going to get glory by destroying the army of the Egyptians. And that is what is uh, what it's all about in verses three and four of chapter 14. Uh, this whole book is about the glory of God. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about how God determined before there was ever a universe, before there was ever time. He determined that uh, he would create the world. He determined that there would be a Savior, uh, that Savior's name is Jesus. He determined all of that before there was ever any of this uh, that uh, was created. So God knows what he's doing, and he knows all the timelines involved, and we don't need to worry about what's going on today. Concern, yes, but worry, no. May I remind you of Philippians chapter 4? Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Tell God your needs, and be sure to thank him for his answers. How many of us need to remember that tonight? You know, we need to remember that we're not in control. As I heard somebody say some years ago, God is God. You're not, get over it, <laughs> you know? Uh, he's going to do what he's going to do. Now, that doesn't mean we ought not pray. We ought to pray. We ought to besiege heaven with whatever requests that we want to besiege him with. But we ultimately, we know, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So continue loving the Lord, continue serving him, continue praying like it, all belong, like it all depends on you, continue trusting God like it all depends on God. They're marching to freedom. They have an indirect route. But then I want you to look also at, um, in the same chapter now, chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, excuse me, verses 13 and 14, which is letter B under point number two. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. That is, you shall be quiet. So there's, there's a time to stand still. This was that time for the Israelites. They had traveled to a certain place. Uh, God did harden the heart of Pharaoh. He sent his army after them. And now they're, they're, they've arrived at the Red Sea. The Israelites have arrived at the Red Sea. The sea is in front of them. The Egyptian army is behind them. And so, and so they start complaining. Can you imagine people complaining? Well, they did. They started complaining. Moses, what are we going to do? Now, God was there with them. He was already leading them as a pillar of fire by day, or a pillar of, uh, excuse me, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he is there between his people and the Egyptian army. It's light on the side of the, of the Israelites. It's dark on the side of the Egyptians. God is protecting his people all around the clock. But they complained to Moses. What are we going to do? Were there no graves in Egypt, they say to Moses? Were there no graves in Egypt that we could have died there instead of dying out here in the wilderness? So Moses said to them, verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord, verse 14, will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. God, through Moses, is promising the people that God is going to fight for them on that day. God is a warrior. God has never lost a battle. And God has not lost the war. He is going to deliver his people. Moses said to them, do not be afraid. He knew they were afraid. Do not be afraid. Stand still. There is a time to stand still and see what the Lord does. As long as you don't stand still too long. Because there's also a time to go. And that's what we find in verses 15 and 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now hold on just a minute, Lord. If they go forward, they're going to go right into the Red Sea. I'm sure that was in Moses' mind. So God just uh, takes that off the table right away. Verse 16, But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. There's a time to stand still and be quiet, and there is a time to move forward. God said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Here's what I want you to do. It is time to move. It is time to go. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to raise your hand. You remember that staff or that rod that Moses had that he, was, he had back at the burning bush? And he threw it down as the, as the staff or rod of Moses. He picked it up as the rod of God. He is to take that rod now and to hold it out over and toward the sea, the Red Sea, God is going to cause an east wind to come up and blow that sea apart and the, the land is going to dry out so that the children of Israel can walk across that, 
dead, that uh, Red Sea on dry ground. Go forward. What's God telling you to do tonight? It might be a time in your life right now when you're to stand still to see what God's doing. Or it might be you've been standing a while and God's saying to you, it's time to get up and go. You let the Lord speak to your heart about that and you do whatever he tells you to do. And then look with me now at the miracle crossing. Uh, Verse 21 of chapter 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. I'd say it'd be pretty hard to drive a chariot that had no wheels, wouldn't you? (laughs) And the Egyptians said, now now look at this, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Isn't that exactly what Moses said to the people? Look back over there at verse 14 that we read a moment ago, the Lord will fight for you and you shall be quiet. You shall hold your peace. Here's the Egyptians giving testimony to the power and work of God. Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. One of my favorite verses, I guess from my teenage years, goes to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 8, which says this, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Here the Egyptians recognized the power of God, that God was fighting a battle against them, and for the Israelites, they realized that they were outnumbered, that they were outgunned, and that they were losing. And they said, let's turn around before it's too late. But it was already too late. Look at verse 26. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. That word overthrew literally means shook off. He shook them off. When I think of that, I don't know that this is in the background of the word, but when I think of that, I think of a dog that's just gotten wet. You've seen a dog just shake the water off. That's that's what God did with these Egyptians. Just overthrew them, just shook them off. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Do you remember earlier in the book of Exodus what Pharaoh said to do with the firstborn or with the sons of Israel, drown them in the Nile. You see what God is doing to the Egyptian army? 
He's drowning them in the Red Sea. That's not karma, friend. That is the Word of God. That is the power of God. And that is the plan of God to get glory to Himself. He said, I'm going to cause these Egyptians to follow after the Israelites. They're going to drown in the sea that they may know that I am the Lord. So many times when Moses went into the presence of Pharaoh and he said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the first time Moses went in there with Aaron, Pharaoh said, well, who is the Lord? Took a long time for him to find out. But he finally realized that the Lord is the one true and living God, the Lord of all heaven and all earth, and he has all power. Stretch out your hand over the sea, and the waters may come back upon the Egyptians. Now verse, uh, I'm down to verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus, Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. God here is showing his great power. And the purpose of that is, first of all, to bring judgment upon the Egyptians. But more than that, he wants his people to believe him and to believe the messenger named Moses that he sent to them. God is always wanting people to trust him and believe in him. God is glorified when a sinner repents and believes in Jesus. God is glorified when a follower of Jesus, when a Christian, when someone who knows the Lord by faith trusts him every day to provide what God wants them to have and to trust him to do what uh, he wants to do in their lives. So they're marching to freedom. They've left Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea now. And what are they going to do once they get across the Red Sea? They're going to have a celebration. They're going to rejoice. Point number three in your outline is celebrating the freedom. They are going to rejoice and have a big time together, thanking God and praising Him for what He has done. So if you will now look with me at chapter 15, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, And then uh, several verses here uh, where they sing this wonderful and great song. It's called the Song of Moses. It's also referenced in uh, the book of uh, Revelation, the Song of Moses. And it is a song that brings glory and honor uh, to the Lord. In fact, the word Lord, the the word uh, Yahweh or Jehovah is uh, is where in your Bible it may be all caps, the word Lord, all caps, that is God's proper name, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, He is mentioned here 11 times in this song. And here's what they sing. I will sing to the Lord, for he 
has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He is the one who delivered his people. And so I have under point number three, first of all, warrior God. God is a warrior. He's a man of war. And he wins every battle he is ever in. And then we see next, they're praising God because God defeated their foe. And the foe was Egypt. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. Just imagine that you are an Israelite. You've just passed across the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptians are coming after you. You turn back around and you watch them as they start coming in to that same dry ground that the Red Sea has, where it's been parted and you've just crossed. All two million of you have crossed. It took a while for them to get across that Red Sea. But finally they do. They look back and what's happening? But the Egyptian army is hot on their tails. Here they come. And so they, they, what in the world is going on? They're coming across here the same way we did. Aren't we going to run? Aren't we going to be frightened? Aren't we going to go somewhere? No. No need to do that because whatever fear they may have turned into joy and whatever cries of, uh, of despair they may have had turned into joy because they see that God, as Moses raised that rod again and the sea came back over them, uh, that those same army soldiers and horses and chariots that they were so afraid of were drowned in the sea. They were covered up with water, and that was God's judgment on the sinful Egyptians. So they began to praise God. They go from fear to joy, and they go from the fear of being taken back to Egypt or dying in the wilderness to having been delivered they are celebrating their freedom. So we see the warrior God, the defeated foe. And then we also see that uh, they speak about their frightened enemies who are up uh, near Canaan in the promised land. Look on down in verse 14. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Uh, then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab Trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. They're talking about things that are going to happen in the future. The Philistines, we just talked about where they were, like southwest Israel. Uh, the Moabites and Edomites lived on the east side of the Jordan River, and they were a long way from the Jordan River. The Canaanites lived in the land of Canaan. But they know that the word's going to get out that God has delivered his people, has drowned the Egyptian army, and they're going to be afraid as well. That did happen, by the way. You read on over in Joshua. You read about a woman named Rahab who became a follower of the Lord. And she said to the two spies who came there, 
We've heard about what the Lord did for you in delivering you out of Egyptian slavery. So that message had gone uh, over all that way uh, all those many years ago. So they frightened their enemies, and then they continued to worship. Look with me now at verses. Well, let's look at verse 18. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. And the horses, the, for the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, this is uh, the first, really it's in verse 2 that we just read a moment ago. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So they're just having a big party. They're having a time of celebration and happiness and joy because they have seen God work. They've seen him deliver them uh, by faith as they put the blood over their doorposts. They've seen God deliver them as they received all these goodies from the people of Egypt. They've seen God now deliver them through the Red Sea. They've seen God deliver them now as he brought the waters back over the Israelites, as, as the Israelites saw that God had brought the waters back over the Egyptians. And they are rejoicing. They're saying, you know, Moses, what you told us about God is true. He is a mighty warrior. He is a God of war. He is good for his promise. He does do what he said he would do. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whatever promise he's given to you, he will perform it. Whatever promise God has written for us in this wonderful book we call the Bible, he will bring it to pass. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness or slowness. But he is faithful to his word, not wishing that any should perish. And so God is doing what God wants to do. And he's planning one day soon, I trust, for Jesus to come again. For those promises about Jesus coming are just as true as those promises about God delivering his people out of Egyptian slavery and sending them on their way to the promised land. Now we serve a good God. He is wonderful. He is trustworthy. He is love. He loves you. He loves you enough to give his firstborn son as a sacrifice on a cross 2,000 years ago so that your sins can be paid for and you can be forgiven. He died. He rose from the dead after he was buried. So you can have eternal, everlasting life with him in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We worship him and love him and we praise him.